let's jump right into it. Um, yeah, the, there are a lot of problems in the world today. Um, so we'll jump right into it. I want to do three things today. I want to define the next normal or how we're defining the next normal. <clears throat> and then I want to discuss how we see the world ahead of us with some of the challenges and uh, what we're watching for and then the things we're thankful for. So let's jump right into it. Back in November of 2020, we wrote an outlook called the Six Critical Transformations. And we said back then that we thought these six areas were going to really define the global economy going forward and really are the things you need to be monitoring so you can understand where capital is going to flow and who's going to benefit and who's going to get hurt. And obviously, with the pandemic, the educational transformation became front and center. But now that's kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit where the others are really, um, whether it's climate or the geopolitical issues or the digital transformation or what's going on from a monetary fiscal policy perspective, those are all really top, uh, top of mind. <clears throat> so let's just define what the next normal is. The next normal for ARS is a return to more historic levels of interest rates, so really around where we are right now uh, in the US, but with a very different underlying global world and underlying global economy. So when you think about what's different between 20 years ago or with the rise of China even 30 years ago and forward, and it's really this change of we're pushing for globalization, now we're fragmenting into competing blocks. This may be the biggest change that we're, we're struggling with right now. The second change is one that's been consistent and going on for a while, but is about to hit us like a sledgehammer, which is this decline in, in working age population is going to put massive strains on governments to deal with uh, fewer people working, more people on the on the uh, government's uh, coffers, and how do you deal with that? You add to that, you have decarbonization going on and the challenges that we're all aware of, the climate transition, which become more costly. Um, I think it's going to actually lead to um, more inflation and uh, uh, more inflationary pressures. But realistically, what it's going to end up with is it's going to lead to higher cost of everything. And then you have the debt issues that we'll talk about, which are crowding out other required spends, which are going to put more strains on governments. And then you're doing this with, as uh, Zarin just mentioned, you had a big election in Argentina. But next year, I think there's over 40 national elections coming. And the outcomes of those will have some big implications on the global system. And no more so than uh, probably the U.S. election with um, President Trump and Biden all uh, trying to run it back again and see where that goes. And I think a lot of what's going on in the world is hinging on uh, these elections, but also these other forces. So for us, this new, the next normal is going to be a lot of volatility, um, this adjustment to a much more expensive world, <clears throat> which is going to change a lot of the spending patterns and living patterns and, and uh, things that we were so accustomed to. You're going to see growth slowing and being even more muted and continuing to be very uneven. And that means that productivity is going to be the key. So this is a very different world than what we're coming out of. And when we're thinking about this as investors, you have to actually throw away the old playbooks or take parts of the old playbook and just don't count on them for how you're thinking about things going forward. So let's jump into what are some of the challenges we're facing. And obviously, one of the things we're watching is the, the wars that are going on, particularly in Ukraine and Gaza. And from two angles on it, one with Ukraine, we're worried about, um, and you're starting to see some of the strains hitting in Europe right now, 
Um, will the governments be able to continue to fund uh, a battle that seems to be going on? And in both sides right now are talking about how this thing's going to is a slow grind into next year. I think this is going to go on for a while. And does the West have the wherewithal to continue to back Ukraine in this fight is one of the big issues we have to watch. And then on the other side with Gaza, we have to really see uh, right now the signs are that this will stay contained, but we have to see we're one political misstep away from uh, things really accelerating and uh, blowing up in the Middle East. So right now this seems kind of on a contained basis for Gaza, but troubling signs with the uh, willingness for the West to stick to it in both these areas. And uh, the other element of it is uh, there is a lot of backlash coming towards Israel, given that they're trying to get uh, their hostages back. But the damage being caused is is pretty aggressive right now. So very difficult situation there. We got to continue to monitor that because that could go either way. The big one for me, and, and it's one of the two biggest issues I think we're facing is the U.S.-China relations and are we getting a floor in them? And there were some positive signs coming out of the meeting last week, but some negative ones as well. And you can see the strains that exist there. But getting a floor in U.S.-China relations and having even a phone call to keep military uh, connections uh, going on is going to be critical. We have to reestablish that. Um, it'll help avoid uh, some simple problems. And we just have to avoid overreactions such as you know, balloons and things like that. We have to have better diplomatic relations because if these two countries get it wrong, it's all, all bets are off for the rest of the world. But having a floor in these relations, I think is a big issue for the global economy heading into next year and could see even in the near term, uh, some more positive stimulus for the uh, global markets to rally and, and continue to be strong for that for us going forward. I think one of the big challenges for the global economy is Europe when you put Europe all together, it is uh, the largest economic area, although it's uh, been on the uh, struggling for several years now. Uh, Christine Lagarde did a speech last week where she was saying that uh, Europe is facing um, a generational challenge that requires a general, generational effort with massive annual investment through the decade. And what they're saying is we're doing this with the highest debt levels for governments that we've seen since World War II. But they're talking about $725 billion of billion euros of annual spend uh, just for green energy and digital. That doesn't count the migration issue that they're struggling with, the training of migrants coming in, which they need the population because they're in a demographic decline in, in Europe. But you also have to figure out how do you get these people integrated? That's one of the big challenges. And I think that's going to continue to plague Europe. I think the other issue that's plaguing, plaguing Europe and will for some time is the flood structure of the European Union. You have a, a monetary union, but not a fiscal one. And Lagarde made the big case last week for a capital market union because of the uh, issues that the U.S. has as an advantage with our deep capital market system. You're seeing the EU bond market is a fraction of the size of the U.S. The venture areas, a fraction of it. The startups are less than half. And uh, getting less than half the funding of the U.S. And if you had a real capital markets union that allowed you to get the financing of startups in a better spot, you could see 400 and uh, almost 5,000 new companies raising an additional uh, half a billion euros a year. And that is a big shot in the arm. That's where innovation comes from. 
So yeah, you need to have a deeper, uh, more secure capital market system. I think this is going to be very difficult to get there as you're seeing some of the challenges with uh, just inside Germany with their budgets. And I think austerity is going to be coming back as a bigger part of the concerns of Europe. And that's going to make some of the challenges of Europe moving forward much more difficult. Um, so I see some real issues there, but I see the needs uh, are growing. And I think you're getting to a point now where things are going to have breakthroughs, whether it's through the elections and people getting put in power that are going to take the countries in a different direction. But um, politicians can't use the policies of normal uh, in this new environment. I think that's going to be one of the big changes. The other thing we're watching is uh, peak rates, but I think more likely we're going to see plateauing of rates where we're leveling off at levels that um, that are appropriate given the challenges that the governments are facing. And if you're a central banker in Europe or in the US and you're looking at uh, governments sitting with uh, rising deficits and uh, weakening financial positions, you have to believe that you're not gonna have the support from fiscal policy in the event of a major recession. Therefore, the central banks are making the determination they have to kill inflation now and risk it in a recession, but they can't let it go too far. So that's why they're not pushing rates up higher. That's likely why they're going to plateau them for a while, because they need the bandwidth in case of a recession to lower rates, because they've already tightened up on the balance sheets too much. But their balance sheets, you think about it, the Fed and, uh, and uh, the ECB have reduced their balance sheets by almost $3 trillion or over $3 trillion this year. That's money coming out of the system. They need to get their balance sheets down uh, to more normal levels because they added about uh, $15 trillion between the two of them over since the start of the pandemic. So they don't have the levers that they had before, which means that they're going to have to keep rates a little bit higher than they'd like for a longer period of time to give them the uh, ability to lower rates when they need to in a recession. The problem with this, though, is because their debts are high, and I mentioned Europe is at the worst debt level they've been in, the U.S. is at record debts, and so is Germany, um, so is China, Japan are all at record debt levels. Net interest payments are rising, and that's going to put greater strains on governments who are being asked to do more by the population and that they have less to do it with because interest costs are crowding out. And when you get net interest costs moving from below 3% above 5% or 9%, that's a big crowding out of where the government's money can go and what they can spend on. And then finally, the last thing on the negative side, because there are things you need to keep an eye on here. The US consumer has been very strong, but we are seeing some signs uh, recently that delinquencies are starting to rise, whether it's on credit cards. Um, you're now seeing credit card payments move from, uh, I think the rate on credit cards in the US went from a low of about 12 and a half in the pandemic to now it's back up to 21, in some cases up to 26%. And you're starting to see, particularly for the young people, uh, delinquency rates rising. When you add to that, the cost of housing, apartments and living and the like is on the rise. You have mortgage mortgages doubling and the like. You're seeing real strains coming on certain segments of the population. And I think that's going to create some slowing. And these are the things that the government's worried about on the negative side. But we do have a lot of things to be thankful for. So I'm glad we can get to that now. It really is about inflation coming in and moderating because we can get that under control and allow us to deal with the fact that you at least have that arrested. You can make the adjustment to the higher cost of living and figure out where you want to make your spends. GDP growth, while becoming more muted and is definitely slowing, 
has been relatively strong in the U.S. and in some other areas, but it is not broad-based. I think that's one of the challenges. Consumer net worth in the U.S. is at record levels. We'll touch on that. Wages are up. The Florin-China relations with the U.S. is a big part of it. But you also are seeing a kicking of the can down the road on funding. So we're not likely going to have a shutdown in the near term. Um, and we do have this massive stimulus and, and uh, fiscal policy driving capital flows, which we'll touch on. So you can see in the West, the, the inflation has come down quite a bit. We just have to hope that we get through a moderate winter in Europe again because of the energy issues are still real issues there. Um, but the drop in inflation as fast as it's come down has been very helpful to ease things on the system. And that will put us in a better position going forward. It definitely takes some of the strain off of the governments and off of the system overall. But the other thing we keep losing sight of, and this is one of the things you have to keep in mind, from 08 forward, look at the growth in GDP. We're at uh, you know, 16 trillion or so in, the, in 09. Now we're closing in on 24. Two and a half trillion dollars in GDP with all the problems and all the complexities and all the challenges we've had. Think about that. You look at consumer net worth again from you know 70, 65 trillion to 150, 145 trillion dollars. This isn't shared evenly, but it does help with the system because that is where the net worth is going to be transferred, and that 70 trillion dollars of uh, wealth transference is going to come out of this pile. And that is going to feed and fuel a lot of the spending going forward. Corporate profits have moved from 08 to now where you were at above below $1.1 trillion of after-tax profits. Now you're above uh, $2.6 in a 15-year period. So really impressive moves in that. And while we're off a little bit from where we were, look at how far above we are pre-pandemic levels. It's pretty cons amazing considering the headwinds and all the challenges we face there. The companies are kicking out the profits again, not shared by all and very uneven, but a big opportunity uh, nonetheless. Real disposable income, this came up last week with consumer net worth. But again, real disposable income is still above where we were in the pre-pandemic levels. We just have to be careful that this is coming in as consumers are spending down their, their savings at a pretty aggressive rate. And you're doing this with near record low levels of unemployment. So that's going to help drive uh, uh, spending because people are, are still gainfully employed and we do have tight labor markets, which makes it uh, uh, gives you strength for the economy for, the, for going forward. So when we step back and look at the puts and takes going on, we believe the policymakers are in a tough spot and that they need to limit the impact of the next recession whenever it comes. We don't see it as a, a near-term issue, but when it comes, it could, it could be hit hard because of all the debt that's built up in the system and the financial vulnerabilities. We think the three big transitions that are going on, this adjustment to a rising cost of living is changing spending patterns. And you're seeing that in, in the earnings reports coming out, particularly from some of the luxury end producers. This global fragmentation continues to get worse and you're seeing the vulnerabilities with the Middle East and with what's going on in Europe and the South Pacific, we got to continue to monitor that. But this reindustrialization of the global economy is really creating big opportunities for investors if you can pick up where those opportunities lie. And we're seeing it big time in the US coming through with uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and others. It is one of the Achilles heels of Europe not having uh, a similar program in place. And how do you get that in place with 
you know, the different governments all fighting for the same opportunity. I think you're going to see much <clears throat> more narrow investment opportunities as we move forward. But I think you also have to keep in mind, we have two powerful stimulants for the system that we've not had previously, certainly to the degrees that we have them now, which is climate and AI. Uh, we have to see how they come through and their fits and starts, and you're going to see them both. And it wouldn't surprise me if the AI transition is not follows a similar pattern to the climate transition with a lot of hype, a lot of spend, and a lot of lost money early. And then you get into the real products that are solving real problems in a financially uh, responsible way. And that's where you're going to see a lot of the productivity come through that's going to drive the system forward when we get those two areas right. But if you want to invest in this environment with all the puts and takes, follow the money, the government and the private sector are telling you where to go. Uh, follow them and you get there a little bit ahead of the crowd and you can make a lot of money. And the other thing to give thanks for in this time is we are living in one of the most amazing periods of innovation in history. And it's only going to get faster. And I think the, uh, the quote that I've used in the past from Justin Trudeau's in Trouble Up in Canada is uh, the rate of change has never been this fast and will never be this slow again. And I think that's the case. We're going to see that in all aspects of our lives. And we're going to see some really phenomenal things moving forward, whether it's in healthcare or whether it's in the workplace or whether it's in just our, our, the way we govern and the way we, we live. It's going to be a very different world. So there's a lot to think about as we're moving into next year. And lastly, I want to thank you guys for continuing to uh, come to these calls and make uh, 361 what it's been, a really fun community. So thank you, Mark, for what you've done and for the community for coming back for 100 and however many weeks. Stop there. Thank you, Stephen. Big, big thank you. You covered a lot of ground. And that's what when you don't have an idea. You just give them all. <laughs> Yeah, like, like Descartes to his father. Uh, okay. Questions, comments? Uh, I'll call on you. Stephen. Go ahead. Andrew. Oh, um, yeah, um, uh, Wright uh, um, said, interesting sort of concept that, that they're going to keep them high so they can bring them down. <laughs> um, I'm not disagreeing with it at all. Uh, that's short rates. Uh, uh, the 10-year uh, has backed off slightly. Even mortgage rates have come off a little bit from their highs. Um, uh, it's an interesting dynamic, and I'll just make one example that I want your opinion on where it goes. So, for instance, all the offshore wind projects, New Jersey, Massachusetts, uh, nuclear plant in Utah, all on hold because the financing costs went through the roof for these long-term projects. Um, and so one of the things is people should think about is a lot of stuff that can't get financed at the current long-term rates, not, they're not financed on Fed funds rate, they're financed on 10-year rates. So so do you have a view on, on the, the, let's just say the 10-year, because it's tied to mortgages, um, as opposed to the Fed funds? I think the 10-year is plus or minus where it's gonna be for a while, like 40 or 50 base points. I don't see any reason why it goes much lower <clears throat> or much higher unless there's a major recession, in which case the Fed's going to, that's where the Fed and the other central banks would use the, the plateau of rates to stimulate the system out of it. But short of that, they really don't have the bandwidth to do anything uh, either way. So I think they'll let the markets do what they're going to do, but I think the rates are going to stay around these levels on the long end for a while. 
So the examples that I brought up are the new normal. That's basically where I was going. Yeah, and uh, I think I think you're right. There's a lot of money going to be lost in in these new initiatives, um, and then you'll figure out where you're going to make the money. But um, I think you know you saw it with the wind. Wind is a great example, and uh, Siemens I think just announced a four hundred million dollar uh, uh, write off on some of their wind projects. Orsted, another problem with theirs again. So I think the wind area is going to be one where you got to get to the point where you can start making money again, um, but you got to get a better business model. Just to point out, Andrew, your question is in our survey. And I hate to put a, a raise of hands to who's done the survey. Because I don't think I'll see any hands. I but just put the link in from the chat. I'll do it. Okay. I appreciate it. Because this, this, these these points are, are covered. Yes. And you probably should have a catch-all at the end, like uh, additional comments on any of the questions above, Bill. But... Bill will present yet once again the collective wisdom of the community on the 29th. So, and and in, and in case you you miss it, you will be getting an email from me personally uh, with all the links necessary for the survey for the New York conference to register and all that. Uh, we're very excited as as Stephen once again has done just a masterful job. And I'm not trying to blow smoke up his skirt. Uh, truly, you know, keeping us informed. We're, we're really, this is, you look back on, on what's happened in 2023 and what we were thinking about back in January versus what we're thinking about now or even mid year. Things have changed so dramatically. And it would really be great to get a sense of, you know, where, where the thoughts and, and opinions are, you know, from the community, uh, as, as we start moving into 2024. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what you all have to say and, and uh, for a great discussion, you know, coming up, uh, believe it or not, next week is when it happens. It, it, Bill, it's hard to forget that we had a banking crisis of some proportions earlier this year, and we barely even talk about it anymore. I know banking. What what banking crisis? <laughs> yeah, what what wars? It's amazing. Uh, is that Michael? Michael. Mm -hmm. Wow, you, you covered a lot of ground, Stephen, and it's hard to pick what to comment on. But I'm going to go with the China relationship, as you mentioned it. And more and more, I look at it as an abusive relationship that we don't know how to get out of. Um, when you look at, for example, the um, Chinese-funded illegal biolab in Reedley, California, um, the recent Chinese attack, sonar attack on Australian military divers. Um, this, I, I actually think this is more dangerous in terms of geopolitics than a lot of people are giving credit to. Uh, I think it's just as dangerous, uh, but I also get a kick out of... Um the U.S. view that China is doing all this stuff as if we're not? I, I mean, think there's, there's a difference. <laughs> we always think that. I guess it's, I guess the, that's the U.S. view, right? I, I actually work with the U.S. military as a subject matter expert. And so I get a little bit of insight um, into some of the types of things that the U.S. is thinking about and or doing 
And I think that there is a qualitative difference in the approaches between the two. Between the military or between the governments? Because I separate the two out. Yes. Yeah. So I think I agree with you on the military. I'm not sure the governments are all that different. No one else is jumping in. I know that you're a fan of GLDD. Um, and I've been in and out of that for decades. And um, one of the things that I'll say when you talk about, look at the government spending. So GLDD hasn't been getting the contracts because the government puts out bids for dredging and whatnot. And then they don't actually um, give the contracts saying uh, the bids are too high or whatever, but the bids are high because of high interest costs um, and inflationary pressures on the companies that are bidding. So I think there's a little bit of a um, interesting situation there where yes, the funds are there, but they aren't flowing the way that people might think. Uh, our, our Congress isn't helping either on getting funds flowing the way they should. We're not getting the people appointed. We're not doing a lot of this stuff. So it's pretty frustrating. Uh, you notice giving, I didn't give thanks for our government leaders, if you noticed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just I just heard Johnson is talking about a tax cut. <laughs> yeah, this the Republicans are actually almost, we're moving to the most, Democratic Republic, group of Republicans we've ever had in terms of uh, fiscal uh, policy. So it's crazy. It's a crazy environment we're in. Hey, hey Steve, it's, uh, it's, it's Rob here. Um, can you hear me? Yes. I had a question for you or Mark or whoever there. This, um, this hiring of uh, Altman at Microsoft uh, from his AI role um, is there, uh, do you see some deeper things there? Because I see Microsoft's commitment to um, you know, to the space, but the way it was handled over the weekend, where it was a back and forth, and then sort of Microsoft sort of you know exerted its hand. Um, do you see this as a um, as a, a temporary fill with a project, or do you see him potentially being as sort of CEO of Microsoft down the road? Uh, I I think there. I don't know that I. I'm not sure I see him as the CEO of Microsoft, but I definitely see it as a brilliant move by, um, by Microsoft to protect uh, and uh, probably their most, one of their most important assets right now. So I just think it's that. I think he was smart and opportunistic and he jumped at the, at the opportunity to protect his company and, and create a competitive advantage that is brilliant. I think it's that simple. I don't know that, I, I think it's too, Nadella's doing a great job there. I think you got a ways to go before you think about the next CEO. I'm not sure that that stays as part of one company either. Okay, if it, that's fair. If, if they did take it all on, I, I, I'm not sure that Microsoft, given the political issues around AI, how closely they keep it in as part of Microsoft or just keep an ownership and keep it separate out. Because it's going to be a it's going to be a political football uh, that's 
when they're already getting antitrust issues and other issues coming their way. So any, I think any other any other tech specialty specialty specialists on the um, on the community here have a, a differing opinion? We covered this a bit before you joined, Rob. So there, there's been a little bit of back and forth on it. Yeah, thank uh, you. Aaron has a hand up, Joe. Uh, Jim. Aaron, I don't, I don't disagree with anything Stephen said about uh, you know just using it as leverage to keep Sam under the Microsoft hood. But one of the things that leaked out of uh, Google, which can give a lot of insight into how everything is going to transform, is that. Uh, Google admitted that they really have no moat to Google search from this point forward. And uh, Microsoft also spent a uh, billion dollars in partnership with OpenAI in terms of attempting to spend money to create uh, a mobile device platform. Microsoft has tried to get into mobile before. They eventually gave up on that idea, but AI kind of brings back the the impetus to try to do it. And so when you think about Google has Android, and so they own the customer through Android, and then their entire AI stack will be vertically integrated all the way down into the into the cloud. Apple could do the same thing. Elon at Twitter will try to do the same thing. And Microsoft is going to try to do the same thing. And so the key is, is once you own the customer, then you can deliver AI in its many different forms. Right. Think uh, assistant style, concierge style services that then can go capture multiple specific domain uh, features under the hood. And so owning the customer and being in front of the customer becomes ever more important in the age of AI. And so Microsoft is going to want to head that direction. And so keeping Sam as close to the hip, uh, I think, is uh, uh, a bright move by them. Right. Um, one thing that we didn't really touch on when we were talking about this is the specific models for some of these companies. Um, there's a lot of new banking happening now. I think Elon has uh, plans on becoming a, a, a pseudo bank. Um, I would be surprised if that wasn't somewhere uh, in the you know strategic outlook for, for a lot of big co, a lot of big tech co. I agree, Jim. Um, and it makes you wonder for example, Stephen, what what does the uh, you know the face of technology look like when we have a lot of these um, you know giant tech companies all uh, with this suite of banking products? What what does it look like for our banking and institutional um, banking cohort? And how does it change the face of uh, of what we know as the kind of the legacy banking system? It's interesting. The uh, you know the banking system is becoming a Part of it's becoming more of a utility than uh, anything else, too. So, you know, with the regulation that's going on, uh, I'm not sure. I think you're going to have uh, some really interesting uh, changes coming. But I'm, I think the regulation that's going to stay on the on the financial services side is a lot is going to be a lot for a lot of these companies that everyone wants to get into banking and all that to find out what it's like to deal with the regulators. So I think there's some issues that are coming there that the regulatory environment will determine a lot of that. And I think they're going to be under some trouble. Uh, I think the big tech is going to have enough uh, headwinds they're facing from a regulatory perspective that they're going to be careful where they're adding new ones. But that's just me. 
Agreed. Certainly a lot of complexity. Aaron, did you have a follow-up? It, it, it follows right along with what Stephen said, which is that I think big tech has always wanted to be banks and banks always kind of wanted to stay away from tech. But as tech gets easier to operate and the banking system opens up to providing and allowing SaaS based technology platforms into the bank, as opposed to being closed loop systems themselves, then what is going to occur is the banks will recompete against tech using tech. However, tech has a bunch of compliance hurdles to climb over to become banks, but banks don't have the same compliance hurdles to go recompete against tech. And so I actually think that this is all going to be a huge boon for big banking. And we'll probably see if I go 10 years into the future, we'll see a consortium of dominant banks and we'll probably see a lower layer of a bunch of community banks and it'll eat away at the mid tier, but the banks will uh, eventually start delivering some of the most basic technological services for, for most of the uh, uh, country. And then there'll be a development platform that innovators will come and build on top of. But I use the word, utility uh, all the time when I'm talking to folks. So yeah, uh, it's interesting when you when you think of uh, Mindshare, right, as uh, as as a consumer or as a banking client. uh, And then you think about, you know, how we spend our time and how we uh, interface with technology on a day to day basis in our business lives. Banking has, you know, banking platforms, commercial banking platforms, retail commercial banking platforms have so much less uh, inherent mindshare than Google and Microsoft and, you know, those companies. So I appreciate your comment because there are hurdles on both directions. Uh, banking doesn't have the compliance landscape to worry about as much, but they are not as integrated as the tech. And I think we've already started to see a lot of blending of those, you know, tech is, I think tech is definitely wading into the banking waters and Stephen's absolutely right. There is a lot for them to manage to. Uh, but they all already have a, a ton of mind share. Uh, Bill, yeah. you were uh, you were next on the the hand raise. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's, it's fascinating. You know, with with traditional banks continuing to pull back. Uh, you know, almost day by day, especially with with Basel Basel three endgame uh, protocols. You know, coming into the fore, uh, there was a quote by uh, uh, by J P Morgan saying that. It was potentially going to cost them another 45% of their capital in order to satisfy the requirements of Basel III Endgame, which that's that's rather stunning. Now, whether that's true or not, I'm, I'm not sure, but that that was a, a bona fide quote. So, you know, the landscape is going to continue to evolve in that space. There's going to be a vacuum that's continued to grow. And uh, even though it, in the midst of crypto winter, and all the craziness that has gone on um, in the in the digital asset space, you know, lest we forget, DeFi was you know was a huge topic you know about 18, 24 months ago, and and that is is likely to come back. You know, not that it's really ever left, um, but the uh, the survivors are going to be you know much better positioned, hopefully much wiser, uh, and uh, and that's going to be yet another segment. Um, to the financial system uh, that that we'll be looking at in the not too distant future as as it begins to regain momentum. 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Everyone wants to be a bank until they become one. <laughs> so true. Just something to keep in mind. <laughs> if anyone who's worked for a bank knows that yeah. what goes on in banks is, and it's a lot of it's driven by the regulatory frameworks that they work under, is makes no sense. So in a tech world, everything that tech's about is the opposite of how a bank would operate. So the clash of of regulatory and culture and all that is would be a fascinating experience to watch, even when banks and brokers couldn't figure out their businesses. Just imagine coming from a completely different world like tech into the banking industry. I think it's going to be fascinating to see how that evolves. Yeah. And to, to Bill's point, uh, there's an old saying that banks don't like to lend money to people who need it. And insurance companies don't like to write risk on, on things that have any risk. So uh, I, I think we're starting to see the, the former uh, really play out because, to, to Bill's point, banks have have really stepped away, and uh, you know, alternate, uh, not necessarily shadow banking, but but private private banking has really stepped in and and started to solidify its uh, its place in the market. Um, Michael, I'm going to jump in and comment about the banks versus tech. Um, I've dealt with. I'm a techie. I've dealt with banks uh, on the tech side, and a lot of their tech spending is around things like anti-fraud, AML. It's not necessarily about creating value for their customers. And in fact, a lot of their technical implementations piss their customers off. If you've ever used their online banking, which I actually try and avoid, because I know the security issues surrounding that stuff. Um, so it's just interesting. And when they do tech, other than like anti-fraud or AML, they typically don't develop it themselves. They look at fintechs, startups, and they acquire them. And in many cases, they're bad acquisitions. Just saying. You're taking, it's interesting you brought it up. Why, why do you think that is? So after 08, the bank, JP Morgan, I believe, hired 5,000 compliance people, right? which big banks, so 5,000 doesn't seem like that many. But each of those came in, they came in with a mandate to make sure the bank doesn't have any of the problems they had that led to 08. So they took their tech spend and said, what do you need to get the compliance stuff you need to make sure that doesn't happen again? So they took the money, instead of spending it on innovation, they took it to spend it on protection and detection. And that's how they've spent their money. So they, that's what happens when you get into a regulatory, as highly regulated environment as the banks are. You get new people, you bring them on, and then you tell them they need to uh, then uh, put the tools in place so that they can do the surveillance. So they're spending money on compliance in tech too, and it's taken away. It's even beyond that. So I'll give you one example, and I guess I'll throw a bank under the bus. Um, so Chase acquired Payment Tech, and they're one of the largest uh, acquirers uh, in the country. 